It is our custom as a church to spend an entire night in prayer each year. We were privileged to do so again from 9 on Friday night to a little before 7 in the morning on Saturday. And the question might be raised as to why we do this. Are we seeking to secure God's favor? Well, obviously, in one sense of the term, the answer is not at all. No prayer meeting could possibly secure a righteous standing before God. God's favor, in that sense of the term, has been fully and eternally secured by the substitutionary death and by the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. We stand complete in Him. But in another sense, seeking God's favor is exactly what we were striving to secure at our annual prayer meeting and indeed what we should be striving to secure every time we gather for prayer as a body and gather with God individually. We labor at the start of every year to wrestle in prayer with God. We labor pleading for His blessing upon us and pleading that He would glorify His name through us. A Christian author once recounted how disappointed she was that God had not heard a particularly important petition that she had offered again and again in prayer. And she came to the realization, it was a breakthrough for her and comfort, to realize that no is an answer. Now well, that's helpful, isn't it? To know that not everything that we pray, God will answer. Indeed, sometimes He does very much hear our prayer and say no. But I ask you, are you content hearing no after no after no after no from your Heavenly Father? Responsible parents who constantly say no to their children's requests are either parenting young children or rebellious children. As children mature in a healthy spiritual relationship with their parents, it becomes their parents' joy to increasingly grant their children's desires, doesn't it? Why is that? Because as faithful children mature, they grow increasingly desirous of things that are good and wise and healthy. So think about it in a similar manner. As we mature in Christ, our prayers for God's favor will grow increasingly like God's own passions and desires. We're going to want what He wants. We're going to come before Him in prayer and petition for things that are on the heart of God. Two such passions emerge from the eminently mature prayer for divine favor that is recorded for our edification in the ninth chapter of Daniel, and I encourage you to turn there. Daniel chapter 9, in this classic prayer, Daniel expresses two passions which should inspire our prayers for God's favor. This man is coming before the Lord in prayer, and that's indeed what he is seeking, the favor of God. He wants God to act. He wants God to answer his cry. And indeed, God does that in a unique way. We'll look at that later. But this sermon will hold, let me say at the outset, very little interest for those who are committed to small prayers. If you're committed to small praying, Daniel will be no hero. If you're satisfied with immature prayers, this will make very little sense. But if you long to secure the favor of God to His glory and your good 
And we need to listen carefully. We need to drink it in. We need to be hearing what the Spirit of God is saying to us as His people through this prayer. Before we delve in, we see the occasion of Daniel's prayer, and this background is vital. Let me fill in a few details, but beginning at verse 1, in the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, and it continues. Let's stop just for a moment. But Daniel was an Israeli teenager living in Judah when Israel was conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Remember this and think of it as you hear this prayer. In 605, Daniel was deported, 605 B.C., deported to Babylon, where he was assigned to the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. In the faithful year of 586, so Daniel is in Babylon. Remember, you're thinking backwards when it's B.C. So 605, he's taken into captivity. In 586, in that faithful year, the temple at Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. The very center of God's worship on earth. And we can imagine Daniel as he takes in that message, that news, that God's temple has been destroyed by the very people, by the very nation in which he now lives and is essentially a slave. While Jerusalem lays in ruins for seven decades, Daniel builds a long, distinguished career as an official serving in the court of every king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. When Daniel was likely in his early 80s then, the Persian king Cyrus conquered the Neo-Babylonian Empire and he placed Darius the Mede over the Chaldeans. That is essentially the Babylonians. The Chaldeans being the dominant ethnic group of Babylonia where Daniel served. During the first year of Darius's reign, Darius under Cyrus, the new Persian Empire, in the first year of Darius's reign, spring 537 to spring 538, somewhere in there, Daniel is reading the scroll of Jeremiah. In verse 2, we read that he perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Back when Daniel was a young man living in Judah, the seasoned prophet Jeremiah received prophetic word from God concerning Israel, God's chosen people. Jeremiah was now long dead. But Daniel possessed a scroll of Jeremiah's writings, and I'd like us to turn to Jeremiah 25 and set our eyes on the very things that Daniel was reading. Jeremiah chapter 25. In verse 1 we read the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So the words coming to Jeremiah, this prophetic word, and then, if you'll look down to verse 8 of the same chapter, Jeremiah 25, verse 8, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you, Israel, have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction." and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. 
This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. False prophets came along. Eventually, after this was fulfilled, the Babylonian takeover of Israel, let me say, first of all, prophets came along and said, that's never going to happen. This prophet is nuts. Babylon is not going to come in here and take us over. This is God's territory. God will defend us. God is on our side. And I think they were probably, at first, pretty much worried about other places, other nations, as Babylon as well. But it came true. Babylon conquered Israel. Daniel is now in Babylon, as are uh, many other Israelites. And we go to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah, you remember, stays in Judah until he was hauled kicking and screaming to Egypt by those who captured him and took him down there. But he remains in Judah during the captivity. He was given that freedom. Babylonians didn't really know why he was always prophesying their way, and I don't know that they necessarily considered what God was saying about seven decades later after they conquered, but they liked Jeremiah, so they let him stay. And he writes to those who are in Babylon in captivity. Chapter 29, verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. These are the leaders of those who are in Babylon. And to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now the false prophets there were saying, it's not going to be very long. We won't be here long. God will get us out of here very soon. Verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord, writes Jeremiah, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, declares the Lord. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. When you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Seventy years. What Jeremiah had prophesied earlier and the letter now confirms that. Again, God speaks it will be 70 years. So as Daniel reads Jeremiah's prophecies, the Persian Empire is fresh off its conquest of the Babylonian Empire. God had revealed to his prophets that Israel would remain here in Babylon for these 70 years. And Daniel has the unique privilege of kind of living on both sides of it. He's not an infant when he's taken to Babylon. He's a young man who can perceive what is happening, and he's an old man now who's lived through these 70 years and still has his mind and capacity to conceive what God is doing. So supplied with this profound sense of God's providential rule over history. Think on that. He sees what God is doing. He hears the word of God. He puts it together. And Daniel is now grieved at the sin which 
incurred God's disciplinary action against Israel in the first place. It's not, wow, this is exciting. We've got to be going back. God said that he would. Watch this, guys. It's going to happen. Pretty soon we're heading back to Israel. God said this. No, he realizes they're here because of their sin. And it's here now that his prayer begins to unfold and that we see these great passions of the heart of Daniel. The first being confession. And what we learn here is that genuine prayer that seeks the favor of God is a matter of seeing ourselves as God sees us in his righteousness. Seeing ourselves as God sees us in his righteousness. Back to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3. Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Fasting, Daniel set aside food in order to afflict his body so as to focus his mind on prayer. He also put on scratchy cloth and covered his head with grimy ashes. This sounds crazy to us, but it was in order to convey his intense passion and utter humiliation before God, consistent with the culture of that day. And in this state of abject spiritual poverty, verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Confession, that is to express our agreement with God's assessment of our sin to express our agreement with God's assessment of our sin. Before articulating Israel's sin, with whom he identifies, you notice Daniel expresses his understanding of God well in this fourth verse. He speaks of the greatness of God. O Lord, the great and awesome God. He speaks of the goodness of the Lord, the Lord who keeps covenant and steadfast love. The recipients of God's loyal, covenant-keeping love are those who love Him and keep His commandments. The idea here with that phrase is not that God's favor is earned by obedience, but rather Daniel claims that those who walk in fellowship with God enjoy His loyal love, and those who oppose God experience His discipline, His judgment, His wrath. Although Daniel walks in fellowship with God, he also identifies with the people of Israel when he confesses in verse 5 then that we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Giving the Hebrew words their full meaning, Daniel agrees with God that Israel has missed the mark, acted perversely, knowingly violated God's will and defied His authority. In what sense has Israel done that? The second half of verse 5. How how have they done that? How have they turned from God? Turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We've turned our backs on what God has said to do. He sent prophets to declare His will to Israel and the prophets were rejected at every stratum of society by the kings, by the princes, by the fathers, by all of the people of Israel. So on the one hand, Daniel stops to acknowledge to you, O Lord, verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. God is righteous by nature. He never ever does anything that is wrong. 
And since God is the sovereign Lord and creator of the universe, He governs the world by and measures all things in the world against the standard of His righteous nature. This is how He brought the world into being. This is how He governs the world. This is who He is. And everything that is not righteous is out of sync with God. At all times, in every way, righteousness belongs to the Lord. In stark contrast, verse 7, but to us, to Him righteousness, but to us belongs open shame, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Wherever they are, the Israelites in Assyria, people scattered throughout, some escaping to Egypt, Others here in Babylon, some back in impoverished Judah, wherever they are, near or far, our treachery against God's righteous standard has led to our shame among the nations. Chosen as a kingdom of priests, they are now in a position of shame and degradation. Verse 8, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings... To our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Again, every stratum of God's people who refused to conform their lives to the message of God's prophets partook of the degradation of Israel's sin. And speaking of the kings, just a side note, Daniel has an awful lot here that he means. King Jehoiakim, taken captive in 597 B.C., spent 37 years in prison. In Babylon, King Zedekiah, ruling when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem in 586, watched as his sons were executed before his eyes. It's the last thing he ever saw. They gouged his eyes out and took him in shackles to Babylon. This, the proud kingdom of God on earth, where David and Solomon ruled in extensive kingdoms with great zeal and wealth. God has brought His people to this. To the Lord our God, verse 9, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. The emphasis falls here on rebelled. We have rebelled against Him. This is who we are. But in the symphonic strains of this grand prayer, Daniel sounds here a theme he will repeat with increasing intensity as the prayer moves to its final climax. You notice that there, the mercy and forgiveness of God. That's not his main point here. And indeed, it's interesting to realize the Old Testament really never answers how that works. It doesn't ultimately ever come around to making that perfectly clear of how God can be the God who judges sin justly but also is a forgiving and merciful God. We know, of course, that it is in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ paying the ultimate penalty of sin that God proves Himself to be just and the justifier. But although all the pieces are not yet here for Daniel and for the Old Testament saints, they know nonetheless that God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. But again, at this point in the prayer, the emphasis falls more on the mercy of God necessitated by sin. Daniel will return to the theme of God's mercy, but he is not yet ready to end the emphasis on repentance. And so, verse 10, 
We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws which He set before us by His servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed Your law and turned aside, refusing to obey Your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. When Israel violated the terms of the Mosaic Covenant by worshiping idols and forsaking God, she brought down upon her head the curses stipulated in the law. The once glorious city of David, the crown jewel of Solomon's extensive reign and influence, was besieged for 30 months. Think of it. You're behind walls, and for 30 months, no food comes in. No supplies come in. People were dropping in the streets, seeking food, dropping over in starvation. Mothers were eating their babies and the afterbirth in giving birth. They were eating these things to stay alive. Yet despite all this suffering, verse 14 the middle of verse 13 rather, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. You wonder how hard the heart is? In its own strength, it is utterly impenetrable. Knowing all of this misery, experiencing all of this trial, yet cries out Daniel in prayer, we have not sought your favor. We have not turned from our iniquities. We have not sought your truth. Here it is again. God is righteous, verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. God is righteous. We are out of sync with His moral governance of the universe. God has spoken, revealing His righteous standard. We have stopped our ears to His call. God is righteous and thus just to judge us. And so in summary, verse 15, And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for Yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Notice that phrase, as at this day. You remember that phrase was used in verse 7 of Israel. At this time, right now, Israel has no glory, only shame, only reproach. But at this time, right now, and through all eternity, God's name is all glorious. And as He established through His deliverance of Israel from Egypt, God's glorious name is mighty to save. Daniel will turn now to call upon God to contend for the glory of His name. As the prayer continues in verse 16, 
But having considered this point, seeing ourselves as God sees us in His righteousness, let us stop and ponder. As those saved by the grace of God, as those on this side of the cross, how do we consider this great prayer? What does it say to us? I think there's certainly a challenge here, isn't there, for us to zealously seek the Lord in prayer. I think one of the great veins of the evangelical church in the West is that we do not pray with fervor. We don't pray with zeal. We pray such dull prayers. I don't believe there's anyone that could read this prayer and say that Daniel is not intense and filled with zeal. Intense effort, laboring to secure God's favor, necessitates a degree of passion for God. Desire for Him, a sense of who we are. We see here, secondly, a call to pray biblical promises, don't we? Daniel is aware of God's Word, of what it is saying. He's aware of the promises of God. There would be a return of the Israelites to Jerusalem, and we in our day have a promise of a return of Jesus Christ to Jerusalem. There will be a time when He will come back. We know the promises of God's Word. More on this in a moment. Maybe it's often because our attention is far more on our lives and our agenda, what is going on with us, and we lose sight of what God is doing, what His grand purposes are. Obviously, His purposes apply to us, and He cares for us deeply. But do we lift our eyes beyond this to see the biblical promises and to respond to those promises in prayer? We find here as well, thirdly, a call to faithfully judge ourselves before God. To assess ourselves. We'll never secure the favor of God if our perception of ourselves is incompatible with God's righteous assessment. We're simply out of touch with reality. If you justify your sin, if you excuse your sin, if you hide your sin, if you shift the blame of your sin upon others in your daily life, I can tell you something about your prayer life. It's pretty worthless. I've never found in pastoral counsel any exceptions. When somebody is running from sin and not dealing with sin in their life, they do not pray. They do not pray well. They do not pray effectively. They do not pray with zeal. Their prayer life is in shambles. We can't talk to God when we're running from reality. Because He is the ultimate reality. True prayer then involves an earnest desire to see myself as God sees me. That's what I'm laboring to do. Not to inform God about things He doesn't know. Not to move the mind of God to be changed, to do what I want Him to do, but to come before Him in prayer and to sense in His presence His all-searching, powerful eye upon me. God, what do You think of me? And the greater... Our vision of God grows the more we sense our sin and how far short we fall of God's glory. This is not morbid introspection, as some would charge it, or religious addiction. It's facing reality. Without such openness to God, we cannot prosper spiritually. We cannot, in this sense of the term, gain the favor of God. 
because we are at odds with him at the fundamental level of who we are and how we stand before him in his eyes. In your personal life, are there seasons where you come before God and pour out your sin in confession before him? I hope that there is a pattern and a strategy in your life that as a sin enters your mind, you confess your sin immediately and continue on. I hope that there's that pattern as there's a thought or a word or even a simple offense against someone in your home or somewhere that you immediately say, I was wrong, please forgive me. But in addition to that, in, in fact, more profound than that, are there times when you get alone with God and you look deep into your own soul and you look at the glory of God and you say, I fall short. Forgive me. That's where our prayers on Friday night start. We took that first segment of time to come before the Lord and it was in that time as God dealt with my heart. Amazing over 40 minutes of time how the sins just continue to come out. You begin to see yourself for who you are in the presence of God. But if we never sit in the presence of God... If our prayers are all cursory, short, quick, right before we fall asleep, groggy in the morning just before we head off for the day's work, I wonder if we've ever really sat in the presence of God sufficiently to assess who we are. We need to do that. Let God work on your heart before Him. This is where Daniel is at. I see him with a heart that's heavy and full of grief for the sins of his people. But I also see a lot of wheeze in this prayer. He identifies with the sin of his people, certainly mostly on a corporate level, but I think bringing himself as well before the Lord and saying, we fall short, we are sinners. And certainly there is also a call here to place the blame where it belongs. That kind of loops back on the previous point. But if, as we face trials, we are easily tempted to question the goodness of the Lord. Do we see Daniel questioning the righteousness of God here? Here the prophet sits in sackcloth and ashes, saying, When all around thy soul gives way, he still is all thy hope and stay. As a teen, Daniel was ripped from his homeland and forced into the service of a foreign king. Think of that. Somebody comes into your land, takes you away, gives you a name they want to call you, makes you learn their language and their books and their religion, and forces you to be the slave of the king. Probably including castration for a lifelong assignment at the king's court. And in our westernized mind, we can very quickly begin to say, what did Daniel ever do? Did he deserve this? He apparently was a very godly young man, and what did he ever do to have all of these trials in his life? Indeed, I've heard very recently from a pastor who would say, if he were faithful in his application of his doctrine and beliefs, he'd say, you know, really, the guy really ought to be mad at God. And be okay if he was, because, as I quote, God can handle it. But I would come back and say, you're talking about a God who is righteous. 
never, ever does God do wrong. And I realize that sometimes a person in Daniel's situation and in similar cases of violation, that we may indeed become angry at God. But we should not condone it. We should not counsel it. We should not see it as good. And Daniel doesn't see anything like this. There's no bitterness in him for what he has suffered. What Daniel is concerned about is that God's name has suffered. What he's concerned about is what is taking place to the truth, how people are responding to the truth of God. We find no blame shifting or anger with God here, just earnest repentance. Daniel turns then to call upon God to contend for the glory of His name. I must hurry here, but we have confessions seeing ourselves as God sees us in His righteousness. And secondly here, now directly petition, wanting for ourselves what God wants for His glory. Wanting for ourselves what God wants for His glory. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all Your righteous acts, let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and Your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore... O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. I'd like you to note two key phrases here. The first in verse 16, according to all your righteous acts. And in 17, for your sake, O Lord. By falling out of step with the righteous nature of God, Israel was languishing in sin. But Daniel recognizes that God's righteous nature includes not only justice for sin, but meets sinners with mercy and forgiveness. Notice that it is for the glory of God's name that Daniel contends in prayer. To Israel belongs open shame, but God's name is glorious. And Daniel labors now in prayer to link together the reputation of God and the reputation of God's people. Think of that as we consider our lives as people of prayer. To link together the reputation of God with the reputation of His people. Verse 18, O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You notice there, Daniel speaks of your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, your people, your sanctuary, the city that is called by your name. Daniel has labored to establish that it is Israel's sin that has led to Jerusalem's desolation. But he then contends with God in prayer to recognize that God's reputation is bound up with the history of his people. And so for your own sake, O Lord, verse 17, for your own sake, verse 19, forgive our sins, restore your holy city. Why? Well, here's the little secret in it all. 
The reason Daniel wants Jerusalem restored is because Daniel's got a condo back there that he'd like to enjoy before he dies. Right? He's in his 80s now and he'd really like to get back home and see it one more time. What's driving Daniel? Let me tell you what's driving Daniel is God has a condo in Jerusalem. It's called his sanctuary. It's called his temple. It's the one place where God has come to place his glory and his honor on this earth in a unique way. It is this place where God is worshipped. It is this place where God has declared his glory and his name to the nations. And it is this place that is in ruins. How can the God of the universe, the one true and living God, there are no idols, how can this one true and living God have one place on earth to put His name and it's in ruins? How can this be? It's we, God, who are in your way. It's our sin that has led to this. But God, act for the glory of your name. It's your place. It's your sanctuary. Arise, O God. Contend for your own name. Forgive the sins of your people. Bring the captivity back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Restore them in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Restore your holy mount with a temple. We can stop and say, this is somebody else's prayer. This isn't my prayer. This is so far gone and removed, the whole historical situation has radically changed. Indeed, there's a mosque right on this spot now today. It had nothing to do with us. It has a lot to do with us. Because what we see here is a man of God talking to God. And it should move us, I think, by way of conviction to fight off the temptation of self-centered small prayers that are far too taken with the course of our own personal yet-to-be-determined history. We need to focus attention and concern upon the history that God has determined to secure for the glory of His name to pray for the conquest of the gospel in this day, to pray that that last soul will hear the gospel of Christ, to pray for the return of Jesus who will rule over the nations with an iron scepter from sea to shining sea, to pray that He would turn over the kingdom to the Father in the end, to pray for the transformation of believers, that God would continue the work that He has begun in our lives as His people do we labor in prayer for the exaltation of God's glory? Do we labor in prayer in the stream of salvation history? Or are we simply caught up with our own small lives and our own small histories and what might happen tomorrow and what might happen down the road to us personally? Now sometimes God answers our prayers with a no. But I'll tell you, Daniel 9 is not one of those places. We don't have time to look into it here today. We won't take time, but verse 20 and following, this prayer was answered. An angel came. Talk about an answered prayer. He's praying to God, and an angel shows up and gives him directly from the throne of God the answer that he's looking for. Indeed, what the angel says 
pertains directly to this prayer. That's an answer to prayer. It's one we're probably glad we don't get very often, if ever. In fact, if you have, let's talk afterwards. But <laughs> what if an angel came? I mean, it'd be quite a fearful situation. But what we have here is a man who touched the throne of God, who touched the purposes of God to such an extent, so tracking with God that he sends an angel to talk to him in answer to his prayer. We may never hear from an angel. But let me say that there is a way of praying that remains mired in the mundane in a way of praying that rises above to tap the purposes of God. And I know as I look out and look into your eyes and know so many of you, and in our previous service as well, someone you know can fill in the pieces there of those who suffer so greatly, whose personal history is of such interest and attention because there's so much at stake. The trials that are taking place in people's lives, I do not mean to say that we forget this world and act as if there's no misery in it and ignore the mundane. Jesus taught us, give us this day our daily bread is a legitimate and honorable prayer. We do want to pray about the nitty-gritty of our daily lives, but listen, do you ever in your prayers see the greater plan of God do we ever really tap the true purposes of God in this world? How do I know what they are? They're revealed in His Word. This is where Daniel starts. He's reading Jeremiah the prophet. And we can pick up the Word of God and read the prophets. And we can read in the New Testament texts and the documents of the early church. We can read of the revealed purposes of God. Do we tap that? Or are we simply overwhelmed with our own histories, our own issues, our own problems, our own struggles? If that is where you are, there's only a certain level of answer to prayer that you'll ever experience. But may we join Daniel's band and tap into the purposes of God in our prayers. Praying large prayers for His glory, for His honor. Wanting for ourselves what God wants for His glory as revealed in His Word. Confession, petition on these deep levels. Touch something of the mind and the heart of God. May we go after Him and seek Him in prayer. Let's bow. Our Father God, with Daniel of old, we have no hesitation to pour out our prayers and to admit, Father, our failings and our weaknesses. Many of us have very intimate knowledge of Your will as revealed in Your Word, and yet we don't obey it. We reject it. We go our own way to do our own thing and take care of our life the way we think it should be taken care of, and we reject you. We do not walk by faith. We walk by sight. We do not trust your hand. We trust in ourselves. We say that there are joys and pleasures in you that we don't need 
And there are joys and pleasures in this world that you tell us to stay away from, and we think we can get away with it. All sin is insanity, Father. We acknowledge this. You are the ultimate reality, and your word corresponds to who you are. But Lord, nonetheless, we walk in rejection at times, and we confess our sin. We praise you together. We bow now and thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who took our place paying the penalty of our sin and rose from the dead that we might be delivered from our sin. And so on the authority of what Christ has done, we ask that you would hear our cry as we confess and that you would forgive us of all unrighteousness. Father, we also desire to want for ourselves what you want for your glory. May your name and your reputation fill our prayers, that we might not be little children who are always hearing no's because we ask of you only to consume on our lust the things for which we request. God, I pray that we would truly tap your purposes and know the joy of living a life of prayers that are heard, that are answered, and communing with you. Help us to this end, Father, as a church, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.